thrilled to have you here as we wrap up uh, this series on words. Um, our prayer is a, a team that we, uh, we thought of this a year ago um, and put a lot of thought, research kind of into it, knowing that this is one of those series, I've said it a few times throughout the last few weeks, that this is one of those moments that if we as believers can get better at this, we're going to earn the right to be heard in a culture that desperately needs to hear and see this demonstrated. And uh, so we kind of been unpacking different things. So if you're new, um, man, I'm thrilled that you're here. I know it takes guts coming to a new place, and I just I think it's awesome that you're investigating your spiritual journey, and, and we want to champion that in you. And, and so we've been talking about words, and the truth is, like, you probably use words. And so, like, this is for all of us in trying to understand how do we get better at, at some biblical wisdom and how we use our words. And, and so we've looked at a bunch of different things. First week was kind of this new rhythm that we want to have and we had a, a Bible verse that like we never do this but we, we kind of said like there's this new rhythm James 119 we challenged people to memorize it and we've been kind of challenging you all throughout this last five weeks six weeks to memorize this verse and not just memorize it but to begin to internalize this and say this is the kind of rhythm I want to have in life and then we kind of looked at week two this idea of okay, this this tongue that I have that you have is this untamable thing James says and it, it's like from your very first word to your very last word, you're going to struggle with the tension of how do, you, how do you manage this, and you really can't, but what you can do is try to guard it. You, you can't ever tame it, but you can try to get better at guarding it. And then week three was this idea of, okay, this other memory verse, Ephesians 4.29, do not let any wholesome, oh, I just gave some away, okay, uh, just... Don't let fish mouth, like, you know, just the idea of, like, build people up, that every conversation is a construction zone, and we're meant to build people up when we have those conversations. And we talked about gossip, and then we talked about kind of this negative sense of whining and complaining last week. And tonight, I want us to look at a story from, like, a 10,000-foot view. Sometimes, you know, when you zero in on something, uh, you can see all the minutia, you can see all the different things about it, but sometimes when you zoom back and kind of look at it from a bigger, broader perspective, you see a pattern, you see something there that you don't really see when you're zoomed in close. And so tonight I want us to look at the story of Joseph from Genesis, from kind of that 10,000-foot view. And so hopefully this series has been one that's been challenging, encouraging to you. And um, we've been doing this challenge of, of kind of, where did I put that? Okay. Oh, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, okay. So, uh, like, we had this challenge. We said, hey, if you can memorize this first, begin to internalize it, uh, then maybe potentially could be, maybe you win something. I don't know if I have anything in my hand or not. But, like, just anyone bold enough to say, uh, James 1.19 or Ephesians 4.29. Actually, before you do that, before you raise your hand to say that, uh, I'm just going to pick somebody randomly. Um, hi, I don't know you. I'm Jack. Here you go. Chick-fil-A. It's on us. Because here's the cool thing. That's how grace works. Okay? You didn't do anything to get that. You just got it simply because I saw you there. So, um, how grace works is it's just a gift from God. You don't do anything to get it. So now I have candy for anyone who's willing to kind of give it a go for a memory verse. So James 119, Ephesians 429. Again, if you're new, we don't do this except for the last five weeks, and we're not going to do it starting next week. So this is really the last week you have to endure this. And there's candy on the line. So anyone? 
All right, go for it. You're right, James 1.19. Brothers and sisters, take note of this. There you go. There's a couple you can share. Anyone else while I'm out here? No one else? Just more grace? Okay, more grace. Here you go, man. So, more grace. Here you go. You get a pocket. I'll put it in there. Perfect. Okay. So, Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, not your needs, that it may benefit those who listen. James 1.19. Brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone, everyone. It's an all skate. Everyone. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And here's the simple challenge for you and for me, for your family, for my family, for your friendships, for my friendships. If we just practice that, I guarantee you, your relationships are going to be in a better spot. I guarantee you, you're going to feel like you're winning more in your relationships if you just kind of practice that rhythm and that purpose and actually living out two Bible verses and kind of putting it to memory. So again, there's been a lot in this series, and if you're new or you missed a few, I just want to encourage you to go back to the app or go online, uh, go on YouTube, catch up, and kind of I think this is something that really will be beneficial to you going forward in life. And so we talked about this idea of getting rid of grumbling by growing our gratitude last week. Tonight, I want to look at this journey, this story of Joseph. And so if you have your Bibles, or if you have the, the app, you can open it up, go down to sermon notes and all this stuff in, in, in there. You can follow along that way. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 37 through chapter 50. Now, for you math wizards, that's like, I think, 13 uh, chapters. How do you cover 13 chapters in 25 minutes? You don't. <laughs> Uh, but you kind of give it a broad view. So again, we're not zooming in on Joseph's life. We're kind of zooming out and looking at his life and looking at maybe something that will emerge from here that will show us something. You can read this in 20 minutes. In fact, I encourage you maybe this week to read it. Take 20 minutes. Read chapter 37 through 50. You're going to kind of get an overview of Joseph's life. And what's fascinating is Joseph, you've got to go all the way back to Abraham. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless all the nations of earth through you, which is kind of crazy because Abraham was really old before he had his first kid. And so he has one. And he's got this son, and he's trying to figure out, and so it's Isaac. And Isaac goes, and he only has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and, and you're kind of looking at the story of God. God's saying, look, I'm going to bless you and all the nations of earth. You're going to make you a great nation. And you're like, well, you got three sons so far in two generations. Like, not really a happening thing. And then Jacob kind of says, I'm going to start growing that a little bit more. And he has 12 sons. And what's fascinating is those 12 sons will actually grow up to be the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's Israel's story. And you can go back in time again to see this and begin to understand. And, and what we don't know at the time, what they don't know at the time, is that's the reality of what's going to play out. And that's through those tribes of Israel that eventually our Savior, Jesus, is going to come. So that's fast-forwarding hundreds and hundreds of years. But in this moment, this is what's transpiring. And Jacob has these sons, and there's ten older sons, then there's Joseph. There's one younger, that's 
Benjamin, and not quite really there yet, and there's strife. Anyone have a family that has some strife or tension in it? Okay, one of the beautiful things about the Bible is, is like the warts and the tensions aren't hidden. Like if you read through the story, you're gonna be like, this family's messed up. And I would look at you and go, yeah, they are. It's like your family, it's like my family. It's messed up. There's some warts in here that you're like, whoa, that's unhealthy. Yeah, that's really unhealthy uh, because they're normal. And in a lot of ways, you can look at hindsight as 2020. We always say that, right? That when you get through a situation, then you look back, you go, oh, I wish you'd have done that different. I wish I would have thought that differently. And it's the same way as you read through these stories. But Joseph is this younger brother. He's got 10 older brothers. His dad has played favorites. Guess who's the favorite? Joseph. In fact, he's got this coat. Maybe you've heard of the play, Joseph, coat of many colors. He's got this fancy coat. We'll just call it a North Face coat. And the other brothers have got like old navy hoodies. Okay. Different, right? It's different. Okay. So Joseph's got the North Face jacket, and like he's going out to check on his brothers. They're all in old navy hoodies and tending the sheep and stuff. And the brother kind of, the father sends him out there, and he's told his brother a few stories of like dreams that he's had about like when they bow down to him. And they're like, whoa, we don't like that. Um, because I bet if your sibling said that to you, you'd be like, whoa, back up, okay? It's just, who are you? And so there's some tension going on. In fact, they, they really can't even stand Joseph because they know he's daddy's favorite. And so here he comes, and they can see him far away because he's got that North Face jacket, and they're in hoodies, and they're like, okay, here he comes. And they snatch this plan to say, um, you know what, we're really tired of our brother, so let's kill him. What? Yeah. Uh, that's the story. See, tension, messed up. And um, the crazy thing is, like, they go, we're hungry, so let's have lunch first. Okay. Um, so they take his North Face jacket, throw it away, and they throw him into a well uh, that doesn't have water in it, so he's not drowning or anything, but he's there kind of in a holding pattern until they have some, you know, Chick-fil-A and figure out what they're going to do uh, with him. Probably not Chick-fil-A because that's Christian company, but maybe like Jimmy John's. I don't know. So they had something um, with there. And then all of a sudden, this idea um, comes and they're like, okay, well, what are we going to do with him? And then they look up and there's the slave traders going by on their way to Egypt. They're like, well, if we kill him, we get nothing. But if we sell him, well, then, hey, we get something from that. And so literally his brothers sell him into slavery. And here's Joseph. Doesn't have his North Face jacket anymore. He's not the favorite anymore. Can you imagine? Like, literally just kind of put yourself in that position. Can you imagine being sold out by your brothers into a slave trade that's literally a slave trade? And imagine the scene as he's walking off, being led off in chains. And I don't know if his brothers are waving. I don't know what they're doing. But all he knows is he's never going to see home again. And off he goes. And that's this first act of this story, this first scene, where he's just completely abandoned. That's Genesis 37. Can you imagine what that would be like if that was you? If that was me, if you put yourself in that position and then you're sold off to slavery, brothers kind of right, you know, they kill an animal, wipe some blood on the North Face jacket, tech back, show dad, dad's distraught, said he's been killed, mauled to death. And the next scene of the story is Joseph in Egypt and he's being bought 
by Potiphar, who's the head of the Egyptian guard uh, of all of Egypt. And he's on a trading block and he's being bought as a slave to go home to to Potiphar's house and to kind of just be a slave boy there. He's 17 years old. So it's not like he's old. It's not like he's been around in life and he's there. And this is the lot of what's happening. And and what we read is this, verse 2 of chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of the Egyptian master, Potiphar. No, Lord, I beg to differ. The Lord was with Joseph. See, if the Lord was with Joseph, he wouldn't be in this situation. He would be back at home. At least that's how we would write the story, right? That's how the story should be written. With every fiber inside of us, we say, that's right, this is wrong. And yet, this is the story that's playing out, and my hunch is, you've been a part of some stories. That in every ounce and fiber of you says, this is not the way it's supposed to go. And what Joseph is beginning to see, maybe ever so slightly, is that God is with you, whether you're in the midst of a really good story or a really good chapter or a really challenging one, that he's a God who's with you. He prospers him. When his master saw the Lord was with him, the Lord gave him success, and everything he did, Joseph found himself favor in the eyes of Potiphar and in the whole house, and he's there, and all of a sudden Potiphar puts him in charge of his whole estate. So Joseph starts off this, and all of a sudden he's in charge of the whole estate of Potiphar. And what happens next is kind of fascinating. Potiphar's wife takes notice of Joseph because he's young and he's handsome, the scriptures tell us. And she says, well, hey, I I want your phone number, um, and I'd like to, you know, take tango lessons with you. That's code. Um, For doing, I want to sleep with you. That's what she's saying. And and he's going, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. My master trusts me. And I'm, I'm trying to live with integrity here, and, and I'm not going to do that because he said I'm in charge of everything except you and except what this one other thing that he has, and, and I'm not going to betray that trust. And so she corners him one day, and he actually runs out and leaves his jacket in the room. And he flees the situation, refuses to sleep with her. Well, she spins a story a different way when Potiphar gets home says, that slave that you bought, that you brought into our house, he tried to take advantage of me, and he fled when I screamed. Potiphar finds him, throws him in dungeon, throws him in jail, because why? He's the head of the guard, right? So he's got access to that. So that's the next phase of the story, is he's been accused of something that he didn't do. But he's living with a consequence now. And what the scripture says in this next chapter, chapter 39 into 40, is that God was with Joseph in the dungeon, the deepest pit of prison. And the Lord was with him and gave him favor. And soon he's working with the warden. And the warden actually becomes his friend. And the warden puts him in charge of the whole prison because he can sit back and relax a little bit. Joseph is trustworthy. And we would look at the story and go, no, no, the Lord isn't with Joseph. He's in a dungeon. He's in prison. That's not how the story should be written, unless God is still a God of good chapters and difficult ones, and he can be with you in the midst of both. And so this next phase of the story is this cupbearer 
and the baker of the king of Pharaoh himself get uh, have some a tussle with the Pharaoh, and, and Pharaoh says, enough with you, and I'm throwing you in jail. They throw him in dungeon. They meet Joseph, and they're hanging out there. They're pretty much going to be doomed. They're, they're probably realizing they're going to be killed, but they begin having these dreams. And so in the con- context of conversation, they, they tell Joseph the dreams. And Joseph says, I, I can interpret dreams. God's given me that opportunity. I'll pray and ask if God will show me what your dreams are. And he, he prays and he tells them their dreams. And he tells the cupbearer, hey, your dream meant that in three days, Pharaoh is going to raise you back up to the position you were at. And he's going to restore you. And the baker goes, well, hey, that's a good interpretation of the dream. What's, what's my dream mean? And Joseph says to the baker, well, your dream is, has, doesn't have the happy ending that the cupbearer says, like, in three days, Pharaoh's going to raise you up, and he's going to chop your head off and put a stake through you, and, and your story's over. Well, that stinks. Three days later, it's Pharaoh's birthday, and it happens, just like he said. And the cupbearer is taken out of dungeon back into Pharaoh's palace, and he's put back into being in charge of tasting the drinks before it goes to Pharaoh so that no one tries to kill Pharaoh because Pharaoh is seen as a god, a little g god in his land. And he's restored in the, the baker. Well, he's baked. He's done. It's over for him. And Joseph says to the cupbearer, when you get out, please don't forget me. Speak to Pharaoh on my behalf. I'm here under accusation, and here I was sold here. I shouldn't be here. This shouldn't be my story. And we look at this and go, surely this cupbearer who he spares his life and tells him the good news won't forget him. But he does. It's kind of crazy and sad what you begin to see is that he forgets him. The chief cupbearer, verse 40, how chapter 40 ends, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. How heartbreaking is this story, Jack? This is tough to take. And maybe here's the truth that begins to scream to us a little bit. Bad things have been happening to good people for a long time. And God has been with good people in bad times for a long time as well. And so though the story may not be how you would write it, it is the story of Joseph and how it was written and how it came to be. And so he's wasting away in dungeon as it's been two years now since the cupbearer got out. And then Pharaoh starts having these dreams. And he can't interpret it. He can't understand what it means. He calls it together, all his wise men, all the people who are in charge of his kingdom. He says, look, here's my dreams. Tell me what it means. Nobody can tell him what it means. And in that moment, the cupbearer goes, oh, I remember a dude. Hey, Pharaoh, remember when we had that little tiff? It was no big deal. It was no big deal. It was like just a little tiny thing. And in fact, you know, just no big thing. It was just a while ago. And then, like, remember you threw me in dungeon? I, I mean, forget that part. It was just we were separated for a little while. And then I got back here, and I've been really good to you. Um, there was a guy that I met in the prison that interpreted my dream, and it came true. Maybe he can actually interpret yours. Pharaoh says, all right, well, let's do it. And so they bring and summon Joseph in that moment up to Pharaoh himself. Um, He's got to shave. He's got to shower because he stinks. He's been in a prison. He's been in a dungeon. And he shows up to Pharaoh. Now, when you show up to Pharaoh, Pharaoh is literally the little G God of the whole entire known world at that time in that sense. And he has all the power 
And so you're walking into the palace, and the Pharaoh says to him, Joseph, he quickly brought him. Pharaoh said, I had a dream. No one can interpret it, but I have heard that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph's first words to Pharaoh is this, I cannot do it. That's what you lead with, Joseph? Like two years later, you've been waiting for this moment, and you lead with, I can't do it. Like, that's shocking. But what he says next is, I can't do it. But God will show you what your dream means. Here's the fascinating thing about Joseph. For years now, he's been abandoned, been accused, he's been forgotten, and yet he has chosen to live his story that God is a part of it, that he's not been abandoned, and that he doesn't stand accused before God. God is still a part of my story. God has not forgotten me. And though my story may not be what I wish it to be, God is very much a part of my story. And so he's leaning independence upon God. He interprets the dream for Pharaoh and says that the interpretation of the dream, again, you can read this verse in chapter 40. Pharaoh, there's gonna be seven years of success and great advancement, a great harvest, followed by seven years of incredible famine. And then after he interprets the dream, the guy who's been there for 37 minutes in the palace says to Pharaoh, the leader of the known world, I have an idea of what you should do. I'm sure all the wise men are like, hey, you've been here 37 minutes. You don't tell the Pharaoh what to do. We do that. That's our job. You interpret the dream, good for you. Now go sit in the corner. Joseph says, here's what you should do. You should tax the people on the harvest that's going to be so plentiful over the next seven years. Build storehouses and gain it all and store it all so that when the famine comes, you can actually sell back the grain to people. They will have food to eat and your treasury will grow. Pharaoh says, I like this guy. This guy's smart. You're in charge. And Pharaoh says to Joseph in that moment, you are now no longer dungeon dweller. You're now the prime minister of Egypt. And no one is above you except me. You're in charge of it all, Joseph. May it be so. Make it happen. And then Joseph is empowered. And he goes into to making all this happen and building the storehouses, collecting everything and gaining everything. And seven years goes by and it's incredible plenty. He taxes it all and he gets it all situated, growing the treasury for Pharaoh. And then seven, eight, nine years later, they've got enough grain to sell back to the people as the famine hits and it's even worse than they expected. It's horrible. So much so that the people are, are begging to, to buy and people from beyond Egypt are beginning to come to buy grain. And guess who shows up? Nine years later, after this whole thing of Joseph being put in charge, his brothers show up in the same city the same town on the same day that Joseph happens to be there taking charge and understanding everything that happens. And the old saying of what goes around, what comes around. And in that moment, the powerless may find themselves in a position of power and the people who hurt them may someday need them. And here's the moment. And it's in those moments when we've got those people right where we want them. What we say next 
may say more about you than anything else. The words you use in that moment may say more about your character and your heart than anything else you do. And Joseph is staring at his brothers in this moment. They recognize, or they don't recognize him, he recognizes them. And they're there just to buy grain to go back to their place, to their hometown. Do you know why they didn't recognize Joseph? Because he walks like an Egyptian now. Thank you. Thank you. Total dad joke. Okay. Um, The next three chapters, he kind of toys with them a little bit. Uh, he, he says, well, hey, is my fa-? he kind of lays some things out for them. He's kind of testing them, singling them out. He's testing them, probably even wrestling with his own emotions. So what do you do when the people who have hurt you most are standing right in front of you and you've got all the power now? And, and what you say can determine the destiny of their life. And, and what are you going to do with that? Why is, they, why is he singling us out is probably the questions going around in his brother's mind. Like, who is this guy that begins to, why is he taking interest in us? We're not even from Egypt. We're kind of from the outside. We're outsiders. We're just trying to buy stuff. And this goes on for a few months as he asks for Benjamin, the youngest, to come. And he kind of hides something in their sack, accuses them of being spies. And he's kind of toying with them, probably just buying time, trying to wrestle through emotionally. What is he going to do in this moment? And in that moment, a few months later, he's in the house, and he says all his, all his servants and all his leaders out of the house, so it's just him and his brothers there. And this is what he says. I am Joseph. What the scripture says is, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. What's inferred here is they wet themselves. Because literally, think about it, you sold your brother to slavery and thought he was dead, thought you'd never see him again, and now he's the prime minister of Egypt who could kill you in an instant. And you are standing before him, he has sent everybody out of the house and it's just you and him. And friends, in those moments, You may not be a prime minister. I'm not going to be a prime minister. But in those moments, when what goes around comes around, and when the tables have turned, and when you have power over people who have maybe hurt you in the past, what you say next may say more about you than anything else. And it's a testing moment. Why? Because we're a people who are trying to get better with our words. And this is that for Joseph. It's this moment. And he says to them, Joseph says to his brother, come close to me. When they had done it, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not, do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourself for selling me here because I was, a, I was sent to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to save your lives and to be a great deliverance. Man, how can Joseph say that? Because he's living a bigger story. So many times, if we're honest, 
it's easy to shrink into the victim story and stay there. I'm not downplaying being a victim. I'm not downplaying hurts that have been done to you. Please don't hear that. I'm really sorry that happened. I wish it didn't. But friends, we serve a God who is bigger than just a story you can shrink yourself into. He's a God who writes bigger stories. And what Joseph learned through all the turmoil and all the challenge and all the heartache he endured was that God was big enough for his story too. And he was big enough in that moment when it was presented to him to use his words for something different than just revenge. Friends, our culture, the culture in which we live, is almost solely about revenge. So much of the turmoil that wrecks people, that keeps people stuck or bound up, is about getting even. Your words, my words, will be like stones. And we can either choose to throw them or we can choose to use them to build a path to move forward. And you have a choice, and so do I. In those moments, when the opportunity is presented to us and we can lower the boom if we want, will you? Or will you raise up a legacy of love? Because that's what Joseph does. And you read through his story. It goes on a little bit further. He sends his brother, says, bring your, my father to me. Bring everything here. Uh, Pharaoh says, your whole family can come and live here. And they're there, and it's a few years later, and, and Jacob dies. And so now dad is out of the picture. And it's in that moment in chapter 50 where the brothers look at one another and say, okay, now that dad's gone, and maybe he was the one that was kind of saving us from having the boom kind of dropped on us, but now he's out of the picture. And they go and throw themselves at Joseph's feet some years later, and they say, now that dad's gone, and we've done the burial, we've done everything, and we've kind of settled up, Joseph, he said to us to tell you, and they're making this up, uh, take care of us. Don't, don't hate us. And Joseph again in that moment says, no, see, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And, and he sent me here. And he's living with a bigger story and understanding that, but he says to him, you don't need to be afraid. And he speaks in love. He, he raises up a legacy of love over them. So here's the question for us. As people who are trying to wrestle and get better with our words, when those moments present themselves, and they will, and you have a stone in your words that you use, will you choose to throw it, or will you choose to use it and build a path forward in a legacy of love? You and I have that choice in that moment. And what Joseph does is a foreshadowing of what Jesus does. Because these 12 tribes, they're going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and, and the Exodus and Moses and all that story will happen. And the story will move forward. And eventually Jesus will come. And in that moment, Joseph chose to say, I'm going to raise up a legacy of love. I'm going to offer grace. I'm not going to lower the boom. I'm going to raise up a legacy of love. I'm going to build a path forward. 
with my words and how I choose to use them. Can I close with the Apostle Paul? He says these words um, in uh, Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It's written, it is mine to avenge. Listen, you don't have to be an avenger. You're not good enough. Okay? Let, let God be that. On the contrary, Paul says, meaning this is how the world operates, evil for evil, get back at people. Uh, this is how I want you to live. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you're gonna heap burning coals on their head because you're living out a legacy of love. Verse 21 is the takeaway. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. Joseph, in that moment, overcame evil with good. He had every single right to lower the boom, didn't he? And in that moment, he said, I'm not gonna throw stones. I'm gonna use it to build a path forward. Friends, that's the takeaway for this whole series. Your words are like stones. So be careful how you use them. I love what Ann Voskap says this, only speak words that make souls stronger. I wanna get better at living a rhythm like that. That speak words that make people stronger. And what if we began to commit ourselves to that? What if the church began to live this out in a world that does not see examples of it very often? Do you think it might earn us the right to be heard, the right to invite, the right to invest in people, the right to call them or, or, or whisper to a different and better way of life? God, that's what we pray. Uh, we want to be a people that have the right rhythm of quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We live in a culture that is kind of in the rage of outrage. Just trying to be mad at everybody. We don't have to be. We, we can use our words differently. When what goes around comes around, the opportunities come before us, would you give us wisdom would you give us courage to use our words to create a path forward instead of just throwing stones at people? Would you help us to be wise with how we use our words? And God, would you allow the exercise and the practice of that to begin to create a ripple of opportunity to the people that we rub shoulders with at work, in our neighborhoods, the paths we cross in life, that the way we speak would benefit them as they listen. And that would prick their curiosity to say, why are you so different? And then we might be able to have an opportunity to share your story of the gospel, the hope in your life that you put on display. As we remember in communion now, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus, your story, is a great, incredible, the greatest story ever. That we're invited in to live right alongside with you. 
And so as we remember the way you lived, the way you died on our behalf, that we might have forgiveness through the shedding of your blood, that you offered grace, not because we asked for it, not because we deserved it, but simply because we were there and you just gave it to us. And then you invite us to live this resurrection kind of life that's empowered by you to now live on, on a mission to let people know about your love through how we use our words. May we look back a year from now, individually and together, and be able to say we took steps forward in how we used our words. So Jesus, as we take communion, we want to give you our words of love. As you take communion tonight, maybe just whisper to him what you love about him. Tell him in a prayer. God, would you help us to leverage our words for your kingdom good in the world around us? Would you meet us in these moments?